What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So asked the Lord Jesus on one occasion. And in Esau, we have a tragic example of a man who does exactly that. A man who gains the whole world but forfeits his soul. As we finish the book of Genesis over the next few months, God willing, we'll be focusing on the family of Jacob and particularly on Joseph. This was a family that God was going to use to bless the world. Uh, Just as he had promised Abraham in you and in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And yet before we start into that story Properly, We have a reminder here that all the way through the book of Genesis, we have two different groups of people. Esau and his family are deliberately contrasted to Jacob and his family. Two people who are related by blood, two brothers in fact, but whose eternal destinations couldn't be any more different. And that's simply the sad continuation of a story that we see throughout the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis 3.15, God had said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we're told there that throughout the history of the world, there were going to be two different groups of people. There's going to be the seed or offspring of the woman and there's going to be the seed or offspring of the serpent. And if we forget that, we won't fully understand the rest of the book of Genesis. For example, if you started a Bible reading plan recently, you may have come to that strange bit at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. You know, just before the flood, where it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And people come up with weird and wonderful explanations as to what that's talking about, suggesting that it's angels marrying humans, the the angels, the sons of God, marrying the daughters of men. When what it's actually talking about is a lot more mundane and also a lot more relevant to us. Because who are the sons of God in the Bible? 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. We are not God's children by nature. We only become sons of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The sons and daughters of God are those who are believers. By God's grace, we're made part of his family, but others remain outside. And the fact that that's what Genesis 6 is talking about, by the way, is made even clearer by the context. In Genesis 4 and 5, you have lists of the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. Two very different family lines, one believing, one unbelieving. And so when we get to chapter 6 of Genesis and we're told that the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men, there's no need to bring in angels. It's talking about the same two family lines, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. 
But tragically, they begin to mix and intermarry, and the godly line is almost extinguished. Noah is soon the only one left trusting God, and things are so bad that God sends the flood. But the flood didn't extinguish the seed of the serpent. The ungodly line continued on in Noah's middle son, Ham. The tagline for the second Jurassic Park film, going back a bit now, was Something Has Survived. In the first film, they successfully bring back the dinosaurs, uh, but all gets a bit out of hand. And yet by the end of the film, it looks like everything is, is under control. The dinosaurs are destroyed. It's all good. But then the second film comes out and it turns out that something has survived. Uh, and that could be the tagline for the world just after the flood. Something has survived. Uh, when Ham mocks his father's nakedness, we see that the seed of the serpent has survived. Uh, the flood waters haven't extinguished it. And then right on through the book of Genesis, uh, you have the godly line and the ungodly line. And so the story of Jacob and Esau, it's not just a story about two brothers, but it's a continuation of the bigger story about the human race. Genesis 36, as I said at the beginning, it really stands as somewhat separate from what comes before it and from what comes after it. It begins, these are the generations of Esau. Uh, that, that's a phrase that's used in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of, to mark off a new section. It will be used uh, at the start of the next chapter to introduce us to the story of Joseph. Uh, ver verse 1 of 37 should really belong to chapter 36. Uh, so really, we could have looked at this chapter uh, at the end of the story of Isaac and Jacob... Or, as we're doing now, at the beginning of the story of Joseph. But I think it is helpful to consider it together here before we get properly into the story of Joseph. Because it reminds us of how the story of Joseph is related to the bigger story of Genesis. And indeed, to the bigger story of human history. Jacob and his sons, for all their sins, and they were big sinners... They represent the godly line. They represent the seed of the woman. The family through whom God is bringing salvation to the world. While on the other hand, Esau and his family, for all their advantages, find themselves outside of God's plans and purposes for the world. And this is a, a pattern that we've seen before in Genesis, putting the two family lines side by side. After the report of Abraham's death in Genesis 25, we're told about Ishmael's descendants. Ishmael being Abraham's son, but, but not the son of the promise. And we're told about Ishmael's descendants just before the story then focuses in on Isaac, who was the son of the promise. Uh, the son through whom the Messiah would eventually be born. So, so the, two, the two seeds, the two family lines, they're, again and again they're put side by side to show the contrast. But even though all that's going on in the background, let's not come to the story of Esau or the summary of Esau's life here thinking, well, 
he wasn't chosen by God. So it wasn't really his fault that he turned out like this. Because Esau was a man who throughout his life made very deliberate decisions. uh, Which kept taking him away from God. Esau, he isn't some pagan. He was brought up in the family of God. He was brought up in the family that was at the very centre of God's plans and purposes for the world. But he walked away from it. He sinned against knowledge and against all the advantages he had. And so what we have in this chapter is a sad story of apostasy. The story of someone walking away from the faith. And that's something that's always relevant. Because it's one thing to start off the Christian life. It's another thing to finish it. It's one thing to start the new year as a professing Christian. It's another thing to keep going. And the Bible doesn't present Esau as a victim of circumstances. It presents him as a warning to us. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Yes, in God's plans and purposes, Jacob was the brother who was chosen by God from before they were born, but Esau was the one who despised his birthright. And actually, the contrast between Jacob and Esau, it's not just a warning against apostasy, but it also is an encouragement to keep going. One of the things that perhaps makes us consider throwing in the towel at times is when it seems that the lives of the unbelievers are going well outwardly. But when we look at Esau in this chapter, we see that for all he has outwardly, he doesn't have the one thing that really matters. And so for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to look at the life of Esau summarized here under two headings. See, not just what he had, but, but especially what he didn't have. And firstly, we see that he had family, but not faith. He had family, but not faith. Just like the book of Genesis, Psalm 17, which we sang in the beginning of this evening, describes two different groups of people. One category we sang of are called men of this world. Uh, We're told that their portion is in this life, not in the next. And then we read these lines, You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. And I couldn't help but think of those words as I read Genesis 36 this week. They're satisfied with children. In this chapter we read of Esau's wives. We read of his children. But that's it. That's all that he has. He has family. But he doesn't have faith. He has family but he doesn't have faith. And how many in our world are in the same position? 
Their greatest desire is to have a happy family. They're satisfied with children. They say their children are their world. But even children, God's good gifts as they are, can't fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. One of the many things that we're tempted to as God's people is comparison. Comparing ourselves to those perfect families that we see on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Comparing ourselves to to the families that we read about in those letters that people uh, put inside Christmas cards. Uh, How successful their children are. Oh, uh, and another grandchild on the way. Uh, Their lives, their houses, their picture perfect. Uh, Ours seem seem so different. And yet, without God... Their lives are empty. And yet tragically this was the life that Esau had chosen for himself. It's not just that Esau's life happens to to end up like this. This was the life that Esau had chosen by the, the decisions he had made in his life. Esau knew that his father Isaac had told his brother Jacob, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. He knew that his grandfather Abraham had instructed his servant concerning Isaac. Swear by the Lord the God of heaven that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. So Esau knew from both his father and his grandfather that marrying a Canaanite, marrying outside the people of God was something that he simply wasn't to do. He learned it from his father, he learned it from his grandfather it would have been drummed into him. We are God's family. We, we, we must not marry the Canaanites. But what do we read here in, in verse 2? Esau took his wife from the Canaanites. Uh, deliberate contrast with, with Jacob, uh, with his father, and gr- with his brother, and with his father. And there are two problems with that. Uh, Firstly, that he married multiple wives, that that he took wives plural. Now, Jacob had taken two wives, but but he'd been tricked into it uh, to at least some extent. But Esau does it with his eyes wide open. But even worse is where uh, these multiple wives are from. They're from among the Canaanites. He had married outside the family of faith. That's a tragic decision which has been repeated down through the years. A believer wants to be married, wants to have a family. Perhaps there don't seem to be any options among believers. And so they go to the Canaanites, as it were. They go to the world. Or perhaps, sadly, they just have more in common with all believers. And so they marry an unbeliever. And often the consequences are catastrophic. Unless God by his grace intervenes. So the life that Esau ends up with. It's a result in part of his choice as to who to marry. We also get a glimpse into Esau's heart. When it tells us where he chooses to settle down. Uh, Verse 6 says, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all the beasts and property he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. Uh, 
God's people weren't to marry the Canaanites because they were pagans. But they were to live in Canaan in faith that one day God would give them the land just as he had promised to do. So they were to live in Canaan but they weren't to marry the Canaanites. But Esau does the exact opposite. He marries Canaanites but he chooses not to live in the land. The reason given in verse 7 is that they had too many possessions for the land to support both Jacob and Esau. But as one commentator puts it, that's only the clinching factor for Esau. It's the official reason, but surely there's more to it than that. At this point, Esau had already spent a significant period of his life living outside the promised land. Uh, Genesis 32.3 tells us that Esau was living in the land of Seir. It, it seems that following Isaac's death, he, he'd come back to the promised land for a while. But now he makes that, that separation permanent. And the place he chooses to live becomes known as Edom. Uh, the name Edom coming from Esau. And while uh, no doubt there are practical reasons for that. He's choosing to live away from the place uh, that God had promised to bless. Whereas Jacob and his family stay in the land of Canaan, waiting for the fulfilment of God's promises. If you have too many possessions to live in the promised land, surely the answer is to get rid of some of your possessions. Surely the answer isn't to leave the land of promise. What would this look like today uh, when there's no one uh, geographic region that God has promised to bless more than any other? Well, it might look like an individual or family moving somewhere where there's no gospel preaching church. And they might have very practical sounding reasons for, for doing it, but ultimately they're cutting themselves off from God's blessing. Or perhaps someone not moving away anywhere but, but just saying that they need to take time out from church. And again they could give some very practical sounding reasons for doing so. Life is busy, something has to give. But to do that would be to cut yourself off from God's blessing. Isaac had prophesied that Esau would live away from the dew of heaven on high. And where on this earth do we find the dew of heaven, but where God's word is proclaimed and where his name is worshipped? That should be a a picture we have as we come to church on the Lord's Day. uh, That we're coming uh, to, to where the dew of heaven drips down onto. But Esau... He lives away from the Jew of heaven and he chooses to do so. He has family, but he has no faith. And though his life looks good outwardly, it's been marked by faithless decisions, both in terms of of who he married and where he, he chose to live. It's a life that we might have envied if we'd seen him. We might have envied Esau. But... Did you notice something about this chapter? There's a lot of names in it. Uh, maybe uh, someone wants to count them up later on. A lot, a lot of names. But there's one name that isn't mentioned. And that's the name of God. God's not mentioned. And an outwardly prosperous life 
without God is not a life to be envied. This chapter tells us what Esau had, all these names, children, grandchildren. But the chapter also tells us what Esau didn't have. And it tells us that by what it doesn't say. There's no mention of God. Think of a graveyard with two graves next to each other. One is like a huge shrine with railings around it and a tremendously ornate gravestone. A list of all the family names and titles. Duke of so-and-so, Viscount this, Marquis that, glorifying their achievements. But no mention of God. But then a tiny little broken down headstone beside it. With, with the words that, that, that are so faint in it that you have to go over and rub your thumb along them to try and work out what it says. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Which would you rather be? Which would you rather have? Genesis 36 is nothing other than an ornate gravestone for Esau. It has an impressive list of names. But it also has the smell of death about it. This is a chapter that has the smell of death about it. Because it tells us about a family that chose to walk away from God and his blessing. Esau has family but no faith. He lived for the present, for instant gratification, uh, for what was easy. As someone has put it, the concept of delay gratification had no place in his thinking. He lived for what was before him, be it a hunt or a meal or the company of women. He cared not at all about the covenant's future glorious promises of Canaan and a multitude of descendants. What good were they in the present? Here's a man who has a nice life here and now. We can't deny that. But he's robbing himself of future blessing. So firstly tonight, Esau has family but not faith. But then secondly, we see that he has blessing but not benediction. Blessing but not benediction. Sometimes we try and work out whether God is pleased with us or not by how our lives are going. If things start going badly for us, we might wonder whether God is against us. Whereas if things are going well, we might assume that God must be pleased with us. But that's a dangerous way of thinking. For a start, some of those who walk closest to God suffer the most in this life. Just now, maybe think of of some of the godliest people that you've known. And they probably suffered more than, than even many other Christians. But on the other hand, the wicked often prosper. Uh, we, we, we sang about that already. The, the Psalms uh, tell us that, that often. And the life of Esau is a good example of outward prosperity, even some amount of God's blessing. But that, that isn't proof that we're doing the right thing. Esau moves to a land that he and his family have no previous connection with. He, he's an incomer, he's a newcomer. And yet he prospers. In verse 15, the word chiefs there could be translated as clans, uh, as it is in Zechariah 12, where, where it describes the clans of Judah. 
But whatever way you translate it, there, there's more than a family tree here. These are whole groupings of people coming from Esau. Uh, whether it's clans or chiefs, uh, chiefs rule over clans. Uh, a whole series of clans descended from him. Think of the clan system in Scotland. Uh, and head over all these clans is Esau, the one from whom they all come from. And it doesn't just stop with clans. Verse 31 tells us that kings reign in the land of Edom as well. And that's before any king reigned over the Israelites. While Israel suffered famine in the promised land and then captivity in Egypt, Edom expanded and had developed a succession of kings. So Jacob and his family, they stay in the promised land and they they face famine and then they face exile. uh, Whereas Esau and his family, they they thrive. There are are kings that come from him. And so outwardly, Esau and his descendants, they look far more impressive than Jacob and his descendants. So has this just come about by chance? Well, actually, Esau too was blessed by God through Isaac. It wasn't the blessing that he wanted, nor was it the blessing that Isaac wanted to give him. But as Hebrews 11 puts it, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That future blessing is described in Genesis 27. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau would live far away, but he would live by the sword. He would break Jacob's yoke. He wouldn't live in the shadow of his brother. Put it together, and it suggests that he would make a name for himself by force. And that is exactly what he does. He comes to this far away region. And he establishes himself and his family as the ruling family. When he's long gone, his descendants will reign as kings. His name will live on as the name of the land. In the world's eyes, Esau has done very, very well. He would have made headlines about his rise to to fame and prosperity. And maybe Esau could have looked at all that and said, See, God is blessing me. And if Esau had said that, would he have been wrong? No. Because that was true to some extent. He had received a blessing from Isaac. The kings descended from him. It can be seen as the first fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham that kings would come from him. But all that didn't mean that Esau was a saved man. It didn't mean that God approved of his life choices. Just because our bad decisions work out well doesn't justify them. Maybe you meet someone and they say, I've left my wife and my, my life has never been happier. That doesn't mean it was the right decision. Just because things don't go pear-shaped for us doesn't mean that God is pleased with us. And that can be true of churches. Maybe there are ministers or churches that God is clearly blessing. People are being genuinely converted. 
But then that same minister or church can make a bad decision. But, but any criticism of them is shut down because they say, well, how can you criticise this man who God is clearly blessing? Oh, how can you criticise this man who God has worked through? But, but do you see that both things can be true at the same time? God can bless someone's ministry without them even being converted themselves. Uh, never mind without them being right in every decision that they make. And so the fact that God is blessing someone should never be used to try and deny or try and justify uh, what someone is doing. Uh, we don't have to deny that God is blessing the person, but it, but it doesn't justify what they're doing. Esau grew strong through God's blessing, but it wasn't anything to do with him personally. Uh, it was a, a blessing that he had uh, even because he, he had outwardly been part of the family of God. So Esau, he knew outward blessing, uh, but he didn't know God's benediction on his life. He didn't know God's favour. It's not, not really a, a difference between blessing and benediction, but it just worked well for, for the heading. Uh, but, but he didn't know God's favour on his life. And it is tragic that the last word of the chapter is possession. The land of their possession. Esau has plenty of possessions He and his descendants have a land for themselves, but it's not the promised land. And what's even more tragic is that Esau's story doesn't end here. It doesn't end with his death. If Esau's story had ended here, it would have been a a tragic waste of a life. But it doesn't even end there because Esau's descendants, the Edomites, would become bitter enemies of God's people. 500 years later, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, the Edomites refused Israel's request to pass through their land. Numbers 20, 18. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. Five centuries later, Edom is still living by the sword and wielding that sword against their brothers, the Israelites. Edom by that point is a powerful nation. But what's the point of being a powerful nation if you're going to oppose God's church? And the story gets even more tragic. Fast forward another 1500 years or so and an Edomite king is on the throne of Israel. How has he ended up there? Well he's been put there by the Roman occupiers of Judea. The Jews don't for a moment accept this descendant of Esau as their king. And he knows it. He's absolutely paranoid about being dethroned. He he surrounds himself with 2,000 bodyguards. He kills hundreds of innocent people, including everyone he considers a threat to his throne. Including three of his own sons, two of his brothers-in-law, one of his mothers-in-law... And the favourite of his ten wives. And so when this Edomite king hears that a baby has been born in Bethlehem. Who's been called king of the Jews. Well he first tries to get the wise men to, to find this baby for him. And when he finds out he's been tricked by the wise men. He massacres all the baby boys in Bethlehem who are two years old or younger. The seed of the serpent has survived down through all those years and is now trying to kill the ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. 
But of course it was futile. Because Jesus Christ is the one who all of history is about. And as we begin properly to look at the life of Joseph next week, we're going to see a man who points us to Jesus in a particular way. The beloved son of his father. One who was betrayed by those closest to him. One who resisted temptation but was wrongly accused and suffered despite being innocent. One who went down to the depths but was raised up to a position of honour in order to bring blessing to his brothers and to the world. Does that summary of Joseph's life sound familiar? Well, he points us to Jesus. He points us to the one who would bruise the head of the serpent on the cross and one day will ultimately defeat him. As Paul puts it at the end of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Maybe you're even getting a bit unsteady on your feet as you enter a new year, but the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You're on the winning side. That's the confidence that we have as we begin a new year. Those who oppose Jesus Christ may prosper in the short term. Things may seem to be going well for them, but it won't last. Because the story of the Bible is that the lamb wins. Esau gained the whole world and forfeited his soul. Jesus Christ was offered the world by that same serpent. But he turned it down in order that he might go to the cross and save our souls before being exalted to the right hand of the Father. And if you're trusting in him tonight, no matter how burdened or weary or even despairing you might be tonight, you're on the winning side. Amen. Well, let's sing about the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent from Psalm 91. Psalm 91a on page 213. Singing verse 7 to the end uh, at the top of the page, page 213, Psalm 91a, 7 to the end. Verse 8 contains words that the serpent himself tried to tempt the Lord Jesus with. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. But if only Satan had kept quoting, he would have quoted his own downfall. Verse 9 goes on. Unharmed your foot will tread upon the poisonous snake and lion strong. And underfoot you'll trample down the serpent and the lion young. That's what the Lord Jesus would do on the cross. Satan's moment of apparent victory becomes the moment of his greatest defeat. We are on the winning side. Psalm 91a, 7 to the end. We'll stand and sing praise.